in the book of Luke today. So if you would open your Bibles to chapter 11. Uh, Last week uh, we talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan and also we had the the lesson from Mary and Martha. Today we're going to continue and we're going to start into chapter 11. I'm going to be reading from the New Kings James. So I'm going to go ahead and start and read our entire text and we'll go back through and pick it apart line by line. So chapter 11 verse 1. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us uh, day by day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend? And go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise uh, and give and give you, I say to you, uh, though he does not rise and give him because uh, he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be open. If a son asks for uh, bread... From any among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will any give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Then, uh, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out, that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, but some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Others, testing him, sought, from a sign, sought for a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because if, you, if, I say, if you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his uh, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than one, excuse me, but when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him. He takes from him all his armor which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. 
And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes from uh, and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And then the last state of that man is worse than the first. And it happened as he spoke these things, a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. And he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Lord, we thank you for these words of yours that you have given to us for us to understand um, how you want us to pray, to understand how you operate. I pray that this morning that you would teach us through your spirit and through these words. We thank you for your goodness and we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you desire to be close to us. And Lord, we want to be close to you because we're your people. And, and I just pray that you would have your way in our hearts in this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's go back to the first verse. Verse 1. Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So Jesus is here with a bunch of followers and Jesus is praying. And some person is rather impressed and said, Lord, teach us to pray uh, like John also taught his disciples, talking about John the Baptist in this in this case. Um, so I... Part, the first thing I think is I wonder what he was praying that he, they were impressed upon to, to, um, to pray like Jesus prays or to pray how Jesus prays. Um, prayers were different. Um, Jesus' prayers were obviously different than the prayers of the religious leaders. And in this context, most of these people are, these people are going to be Jewish people that are following Jesus. They've been praying and hearing prayers and hearing Pharisees in the streets praying and have heard prayers their whole life. But something about how Jesus is praying prompts them to ask, man, this guy prays different than everybody else I've heard for the rest of my life. Jesus, help, because not like they did not know how to pray. We're not talking about people that have no concept of God. These are people that have probably been praying to God their entire lives, but they're, they're struck and want Jesus to teach them how to pray. Uh, we see in, even just in the book of Luke that Jesus prayed in every major crisis point in his life um, and all through his life. Uh, he prayed... At his baptism, we see in chapter 3, verse 21, he prayed when he was choosing his disciples. In chapter 6, verse 12, he prayed while he was alone. There's a bunch of verses for that. He prayed in the presence of others. There's a whole bunch of verses for that. He prayed for Simon Peter. Chapter 22, 32, he prayed in the garden before his uh, betrayal. We see in chapter 22, 40 through 44. He even prayed while he was on the cross. We see in 23, 34. So Jesus was always in communion with his Father, and he prayed pretty much all the time. So we need to uh, we need to learn even just from that from the first uh, from the before he even teaches us to pray just looking at the life of Jesus and how he lived his life it was a life full of prayer. First Thessalonians five sixteen says rejoice always pray without ceasing and everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So we are instructed in Scripture to pray without ceasing. How does that work? Um, how do I go to work and if I have to be praying all the time without stopping? Well. The idea is to always be in a constant state of prayer. Uh, you should ne- never be at a point in your life where you're doing something or your mind is in such a way where if you had to stop and pray right then, you couldn't because it was like, wait, I'm just, I can't be in communion with Jesus while I'm doing what I'm doing like right now, while I'm watching what I'm watching, while I'm talking the way I'm talking. We need to be people that are always uh, bathing our lives in prayer. Um, there's another kind of question when I read this. That has been um, through the church through through history. You know, are these verses that are about to come up here, verses two through four? Is that a specific prayer for the saints to pray? Like, Lord, teach us how to pray. And it's like, all right, here's a five sentence prayer, and I go pray this every day. 
I don't know. I don't think that's necessarily what's uh, what is intended here. I don't think there's any, by any means. I don't think there's anything wrong with praying these uh, word for word the prayer that Jesus goes through. But as Jesus was teaching, was Jesus was teaching and praying in the midst of other people, and they wanted to know how do we pray. I think these are more guideposts of what we should be praying for, how we pray, and what we pray. And then we see also. Uh, with the verses following verses two through four, that Jesus gives uh, parables that talk about prayer that would that would uh, indicate that there's more to praying than just saying these four verses without ceasing all day long, you know, all the time. These are really this is really a guide to teach us who uh, how to pray and what to pray. So let's go ahead and start in with these verses. We have verse number two, and when and Jesus is speaking, he so he said to them. When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven. So, when Christ teaches his disciples to pray, he begins with an immediate direct address to God and he calls God Father. And we see Romans 8 15, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption to whom we cry out, Abba, Father. You know, for those of us that are redeemed, we should, and we, we can and we should, we see address God in a very personal manner, you know, with all respect. We should not think that we're praying to some distant overlord or that we're praying to somebody that's far away to try to get what we want. Uh, we should pray to a father who sees us, who knows us, who cares so deeply about us that he, you know, he moved heaven and earth um, to make us right with him and to rescue us. He is our true father. He's not, he's not like me. He's not an imperfect father. He's a perfect father. But that should be our attitude when we're in a spirit of prayer, reverence, of course, as we'll see with the coming verses, but also very personal. That's what God desires of us. And uh, so after addressing his father, Christ makes five requests, which is interesting. So this prayer addresses, addresses his father and then makes five requests. The first two requests in Jesus' prayer are, or in this instructional prayer, deal with God's interests, and then the last three deal more with the interest of the person praying. So the first, the first prayer, the first part of the prayer that deals with God's interest, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Which is something interesting. I've never once heard anybody say that besides in their prayer. Hallowed. I was like, man, if, you know, if it wasn't for the Bible, some of, we would, uh, some of these words we probably would never once have heard. After a person address. Uh, you know, after a person address, addresses God, we see this word, hallowed or revered. Um, although God is personal, like we said, he's also the all-powerful ruler of everything everywhere. He's also going to be the judge of every thought and action of every person that has ever thought and acted. So um, we need to come before him in reverence, even though he is very personal. Hallowed be your name is an interesting phrase. It's both a, it's, it's a, it is a request, but it's a request for God to work in such a way as to act, to bring glory to himself for all those to see. It is a prayer that people would bow their knees before him and revere him as they rightly should, but it's, but it's also it has the connotation of God act, do things that would draw people to you. And people would say, oh my goodness, look at this. This is, you know, and revere God. We see verses in Scripture when they talk about good deeds of the believers that that those, that people would see those and give uh, praise to God. That's kind of on the human side, but God also, when He moves, He brings people to Himself. <coughs> so the first prayer is, "Hallowed be Your name," and this should be an outward and an inward prayer. 
Lord, make your glory known in this world, in your church, and in my heart. So when we start praying to God, personal but also very reverent, and also the first, the first thing we need to uh, be interested in is God's own interests. Hallowed be your name. Then he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the second prayer is also about God's interest, and that is the interest of his kingdom. And we see in Scripture already up to this point, John the Baptist preached about the kingdom. Jesus is taught about the nature of the kingdom. Uh, We see a lot of that in in the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. We also see that the disciples have been sent out already and have come back, and they were sent out to proclaim the kingdom. God's kingdom is of utmost importance to him. Um, As his church, we need to care about that a lot. We need to talk about it. We need to be about the kingdom. That's, that's what God is about. That's what we see in Scripture. That's what we need to be about. We are instructed to pray for and therefore identify with the message of Christ and his followers. Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's an interesting prayer because generally if I'm going to pray, I'm thinking about things I've done bad I need to ask forgiveness for. I'm thinking about things I need, things I want. Not often do I go to God, and the first thing before any of those are, your kingdom come, your will be done here on this world, in my life, in my heart. And that's a very important thing, I think, when we go to pray, as Jesus instructed us to think about the the big picture, the interest of God, before we even get to our own interests. And therefore, we can pray rightly and by the Spirit, I think, better if we have that right perspective. Your will be done. So one day, when, we're in, when the kingdom of God comes fully, uh, as Michael was praying, uh, we will see uh, what his perfect will looks like. Right now, you know, this is just not the case. Uh, it is right that we should pray for God's will to be done because we see so much in our world that is completely contrary to God's will. You know, we see it on the news. We see it in our classrooms. We, if we look inward, we see it in our own hearts, things that are contrary to God's will. We're surrounded by things all the time like that, and this is should definitely cause us to pray. So we pray, hallowed be your name, your, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we move towards the more personal request. The third, we see, give us this day our daily bread. And daily bread is an interesting thing. It's a general term for nourishing or, fulfill, or filling food. It doesn't mean that if you're a believer in Jesus that you only eat bread and that's it. You know, Give us today our daily bread. Salad? Who eats salad? We eat our daily bread. No, it's just, it's just kind of a general term for the sustenance that we need for today. Jesus teaches his followers to pray for God to give them what they need day by day. Um, even though this, the, the context here is really about physical needs, I think it's right for us to um, pray to the Lord to meet our physical needs and our spiritual needs even day, to, day by day. I think of Miss Ann always uh, telling us about her the daily breads that she brings. And... You know, there's a sense, too, where we want to rely on God day by day, not just for what we need physically, but also spiritually, but we're not relying on our own strength, that we operate in our own strength. And I also was thinking about that, too, when we were at uh, Jeff Hilton's place this week. You know, it's like, man, this is an awesome guy, first of all, we know, because just hearing stories about people he's led to Christ, you meet his kids and see what amazing believers they are and how willing they are to serve. Then you're in this ridiculously amazing house, and but you know Jeff Hilton can just still get on his knees at night and say, "Lord, you know, give me today my this, my daily bread. Give me what I need for today." And he needs that when he's going to work and dealing with people that don't care about Jesus and they have a lot of money and 
So you're trying to tell me I need saving from what? You know, uh, he needs sustenance to, to do what God has for him. We're all, we're all at different places. Um, and so when you're reading about daily bread, I don't pray for daily bread because I know I went grocery shopping last week. I know I'm probably going to run out of food this afternoon. I'm going to go grocery shopping again come Tuesday. So I'm not, you know, that's not something that we generally pray for because we're um, in the United States for the most part pretty well off. There are some people in this room that don't know where their rent's going to be paid next week. And this is a prayer that's quite literal, you know, help me meet my uh, essential needs that I need. But this can also be something where we lean on God for everything that we need day by day, not just physical things. And that moves us in here to the second personal prayer, the fourth prayer. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And Jesus has already taught before, in, even in the book of Luke, in chapter 7, 36 through 50, that we are... Um, that people are saved through faith. It's not through works. And I've, I've, we've heard teaching, we've all heard bad teaching from time to time that if you sin, or maybe you have, maybe you haven't. There are people who teach if you sin and you don't confess it, then you're not forgiven. This is not at all what this verse is getting at, um, not even slightly, so don't be confused by that. Um, we don't want to fall into that into that type of trap. Um Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. In asking forgiveness of sins, a person expresses faith to God that, will indeed, that God will indeed forgive them. You know, sometimes you take that for granted, well, Lord, forgive me, and you actually believe he will. Not a whole lot of times have I said, Lord, man, forgive me for saying such and such to this guy today. I've never once thought, what if he doesn't? You know what I mean? Actually, there is faith in when even in the very personal day to day thing of saying, "Lord, forgive me for this thing that I've done." It's just not right. That's an exercise of your faith. It's something important for us to realize too. That that is an exercise of your faith, and so it's a very uh, vital part of our lives. For those who have come to, uh, to God and trusted in Christ for forgiveness, one out, that is one outward evidence of faith is that when you do something bad, you feel bad and you ask forgiveness and you exercise that faith. <laughs> And then we see, uh, continuing the verse, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And that's a really odd prayer, because it's very clear, I think, that God doesn't want us to sin, and he doesn't tempt people to sin. Why in the world would he lead us into temptation? Why do we even have to pray that? Um, the prayer is, is not, man, I think God might lead me into temptation, so let me try to convince him not to. But it's more of uh, deliver us from you know, situations that would tempt me to sin. As you're leading me, as I'm walking with you, keep me safe. Guide me other places. Um, lead me away from places where I'll be tempted. And we see um, already in chapter 10, 20, 25 through 29, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they always wanted to justify themselves. Um, they thought that they kept the law well. They thought that they were okay with God. Um, they were, they we're always in a situation where, like, I'm okay, I'm keeping this law, I'm keeping this law, I'm keeping this law. But followers of Jesus have a bit of a have a bit of a different mindset. We know our propensity to sin, and we also know that, man, I'm, I can be easily tempted. And we don't need to be like the Pharisees that are like, I'm okay, I'm okay. And if there's a gray area, be like, wait, I think I'm okay. Let me let me ask this thing of Jesus. Am I okay because I did this and did this? I'm I'm cool, right? That doesn't need to be our our mentality when it comes to sin. We always need to be humble before the Lord. 
1 Corinthians uh, 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You know, in, in my life I've kind of found that recognition of one's own weakness and recognition of how, how easily we are tempted to sin as, as humans is really a strong barometer of spiritual health. You know, we should never be comfortable with our sin. Uh, there's always forgiveness in Christ. But all the people that I've ever looked up to that I, can, that I see fruit in their life, when you talk to them about sin, it'll be something small. It's like, you know what, I just feel bad. I just haven't been able to think. The other day, I said this to this person, and it was kind of rude. And I'm like, dude, that was two days ago, and that's, that's bugging you? Because, like, I'm, <laughs> you know, I, I, I can throw down some trump cards on the worst things I've done in two days. But it's always, if you notice people, too, that you're like, you're, you say Christian, you say all the right things, you know all the right things, but then you look at their lives, and they're like, well, there's this thing that might not be right. And they're like, yeah, but you know what? <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd pretty, you know, where it's, it always seems like with people that really are about what Jesus is about recognize when something is not right. And that's how we need to be. Not that we need to beat ourselves up, because there's always grace. We're living, in this, uh, we're living with a, a God of grace, uh, but we never need to make uh, a foothold for sin. John Wesley's mother, Susanna, she was quite an extraordinary woman. Um, as a young man, Wesley, he became a famous evangelist that God used so greatly in the 1700s. Uh, Wesley once asked his mother for a definition of sin. She replied in a letter. This would be a great thing to get from your mama. It says, take this rule. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes off your relish of spiritual things. In short, whatever increases the strength and authority of the body over the mind, that to you, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may be in itself. Susanna Wesley, 1725. But man, what an insightful response. I just want to read that one more time. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things. In short, whatever increases the strength and authority of your body over your mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may be in itself. With, when you have an understanding of sin like that, as something that's between you and God, that's keeping you from what God wants, somebody like Wesley has, hears that, takes that to heart, and God uses him so greatly you know what you know it's it's that's an important perspective for us to have we need to all catch a little bit of that and after this teaching on prayer so we've gone through all these verses where Jesus does this prayer for them to teach them how to pray then he goes on and tells two parables that are specifically about prayer that further uh, makes his points about how they should pray and that takes us verse 5 and he said to them which of you uh, shall have a friend, and go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, and say, Do not trouble me, the door is shut, my children are in bed with me, I cannot rise and give it to you. I say to you that he will not rise and give it to you because he is uh, his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs." 
The first thing I read is like, man, what a terrible example <laughs> of how God works. It's kind of funny. Um, remember, this is a friend in the story. So let's say Michael, it's 2 a.m., my parents show up. They have traveled by, from foot from Virginia, and they are hungry, and all the stores are closed. I send Michael a text. Michael, need some bread. Michael's going to be like, are you kidding me? He's going to turn the phone off and put it beside the bed. Come knock on his door. Don't, don't, don't. Michael, I need some bread. You know, uh, sure, man, here. I mean, we're friends. I've got bread. Why are you bother me at 2 a.m.? And, um, and the, it's not saying that God is like that. God is not, uh, hey, you know, I guess you can bug me. If you bug me enough, I might give you what you want. It's saying quite the opposite. He goes on to say that God gives freely and wants us to ask of him. He's not like the friend. Even a friend, an okay human friend that's sinful in nature is going to give you something if you ask for it and you really need it. How much more is God going to give you what you ask for if you really need it? That's the... That's the that's the context of this. There's a couple of other negative example lessons we see in the book of Luke in 16 and 18. Um, so it's not the first time that such an example is given. Um, but, but also Jesus does teach perseverance with this. And perseverance is important. And Jesus wants us to come to him with our requests. Uh, more than half a century ago, century ago, George Mueller, I'm sure you may have heard of him. He was a famous, uh, faithful orphanage director, began to pray for a group of five friends that didn't know the Lord. And he prayed consistently every single day. After five years, one of them came to Jesus. After 10 years, two more of them came to Jesus. He prayed for 25 years for the fourth man to be saved. And the fifth man he prayed for every day until his death. And the fifth man came to know the Lord after George Mueller died, but it was 52 years that he had prayed for that friend before he came to the Lord. That is perseverance, and the Lord does desire perseverance in our prayers. And that example shows that he desires perseverance, but even though he desires perseverance, he's not like a, a, like a, a human friend. He's, uh, he's much more than that. Going on to verse 9. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek. And you will find, knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Interesting that the, the, that the good gift that Jesus replies with is the Holy Spirit. But um, these gifts are kind of odd. because But some fish kind of look a little bit serpentish. I mean, they're in the same, not exactly, but kind of general family. There's some loaves of bread that might look kind of like a rock. Not like you'd try to chew on a rock, but something similar in shape. Um, a little... Uh, if you had a scorpion kind of balled up, so there's, there are white scorpions in the Middle East. If they're balled up, might look kind of egg-like. But no, no human father would do something so terrible to their ki- kids. The example is self-explanatory. God wants to give good things to his children. He doesn't want to harm his children. Uh, if we are praying according to God's will, he will not turn his back on us. He desires for us to seek him and petition him for our needs. And we see a little bit of a shift here now from the the beginning of the chapter here into verse 14, we see increased rejection of Jesus. In verse 14, 
and he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. And so it was when the demon had gone that the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. So first of all, what an amazing miracle. This guy has a demon. He's demon-possessed. And the outward, he's not screaming and jumping around. The outward uh, expression of this demon is that this guy that could once talk can't say anything. He is mute. He can't say anything. And Jesus does this amazing miracle and casts out the demon publicly in front of a bunch of people. And this guy's talking. So people are praising the Lord. And it says that the multitudes marveled. Um, we see in Scripture that Jesus had authority over demons every time he encountered them. This was a sign of his messianic power, which is specifically explained in chapter 7 and in verse 13, that some of the, the reason he was doing this uh, is that he had the power to do it, which pointed to the fact that he was from God. But one of them said, verse 15, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. So there are some people here in the crowd that accused Jesus of operating in demonic power. It doesn't say here in Luke who these people are, but we see the same account in Matthew that's explicitly stated that these people are Pharisees. Beelzebub was a name that was used for Satan specifically. It's got an interesting history. I'm not going to get all into it, but um, but that was saying specifically that he was. They were saying that Jesus was operating either possessed by Satan or operating in the power of Satan, and that's how he could command demons to leave because he had Satan's authority over demons in order to do this. You always talk about, like, lightning striking because somebody said something bad. You know, you hear about that, or somebody did something walking up while you were a kid. You're like, oh, I'm going to stand away from this guy. Lightning's going to strike. If lightning ever was going to strike in the history of the world, it is when somebody sees Jesus cast out a demon and says, well, he did that by Satan, <laughs> you know? So, man, if, if, man, that's that's just, I mean, what an audacious, wow, man, what gall to make some sort of statement like that. They were just not willing to believe whatsoever that he was from Christ. Then others testing him sought from a sign from heaven. So we see there's kind of three groups here. This first group, the multitudes marveled. There's a second group that are Pharisees that say, yeah, he can do this. That's because he's got the power of Satan. This third group says, I don't know. We need to see a sign. As if, you know, seeing a demon cast out and a guy that couldn't talk all the sons talking is not a sign enough that he's from God. You know, they, they, they're, they're interested in seeing a sign. Verse 17, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against itself falls. Jesus, again, knows the thoughts of the people in the crowd, which is interesting. There's so many times in Scripture when it just kind of says it offhand, Jesus knowing their thoughts, Jesus knowing their thoughts. That also shows his power. And Jesus shows them, too, how ridiculous, it is, how ridiculous this line of thinking is and exposes those who refuse to believe the one sent to them. And he continues here in verse 18. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So there's some people apparently that follow the Pharisees that have attempted to cast out demons. Maybe it works in some cases, but obviously in this case it didn't work because here's this guy that um, is still has a demon and can't speak. Um, so when he says, uh, when he says, by whom do your sons cast them out? He's saying, by you know the people that follow you that are casting out demons. If you say that I have a demon when I'm doing it, but when you're doing it, you don't, you don't hold the same standard. What's, difference between, what's the difference between me and them? He's showing that there's a double standard. 
And also, since Jesus has such commanding authority over demons, uh, the people marveled. So this wasn't like he was having to struggle with this demon for hours and say different incantations. He said, out of here, buddy, and he was gone. And the people were amazed. They marveled at him. It wasn't like anything they'd seen before. And it's not. And Jesus shows that it's illogical for the enemy to cast himself out because that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Your kingdom's not going to stand if you're fighting against yourself. Interesting, he uses the word kingdom again. That's a recurring theme. Then he goes into verse 21 with another parable. When a strong man, fully, uh, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. Now, this is, before we get into the rest of the parable, we've got to understand who's who in the story. This, is, this story is told in the context of what just happened, that is, that a, that a demon was cast out of this person. So in this context, context the strong man... Uh, who's guarding his own house is actually the demon because he was guarding this guy who had his evil spirit and this and Satan didn't, the demon didn't want to come out of him uh, and that but Jesus Jesus was the stronger man that broke in and freed him verse 22 but when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him he takes from from him all of his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils uh, and and likewise too our world has been taken captive, in a sense, by the enemy. He is a strong man trying to guard, guard that. But now Jesus has bound the enemy through his death, burial, and resurrection. He's, he's breaking free people that have been um, taken captive by the enemy. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in this parable. And then he says this very interesting statement. He says, he who is not with me is against me, and he does, who does not gather with me scatters. You may be thinking, hmm, this sounds, sounds a little bit familiar, but opposite. Um, if you recall, Michael taught just a couple of weeks ago and covered the section from Luke in chapter 9, verse 50, where Jesus says pretty much the opposite. Whoever is not against you is with you. And then he says, now, whoever is not with me is against me. This seemed to be kind of conflicting. But the verses have very drastically different context. In chapter 9, if we look back and remember that, the disciple came, disciples came to Jesus and were upset because there's a man casting out demons in Jesus' name. And they were like, well, this guy, he's not one of us, though. He's over here, and obviously he believes in the power of Jesus' name because it's working and he's casting demons out, but he's not one of us. So we tried to stop him. And Jesus told him, no, don't stop him. If he's not against you, he's for you. In this case, he's telling people, if you're not for me, you're against me. So, so which is it? Well, this context, is, is, context of 11 is very different. There's no one here that's using Jesus' name. Instead, they're accusing Jesus of demonic power. So the real dividing line on this is over the person of Jesus. That's where the dividing line lies. And as a follower of Christ, if we see other people doing good in the name of Jesus, you know, holding to the correct teaching of Christ and doing all kinds of good things, we can't be like, no, back it down, dude. They're not with us. Wait, those, those dudes aren't with us. They've got to stop this. No, they're, they're, not, they're not against us. They're with us working uh, however, if a person or group does not believe in Christ, or worse, is actively opposing the message of Christ, um, then they are active, very much against Christ. They're not gathering with Christ, they are scattering. So if somebody is teaching something that is not with Christ at all, Jesus is gathering people to himself, gathering people to the truth. And if somebody is spreading lies, then he's not, they're not gathering, they are scattering and uh, putting people astray. And that's where we need to, that's when there's the dividing line. So the dividing line really comes down to the person of Jesus. 
So Michael is totally right when he's teaching we should not be sectarian. We, we're not should be, you know, the levels of Christian. Here's the, the uber-Christian church, and here's the kind of Christian church. And the dividing line is Jesus. Are we following Christ? Are we following his teaching? Um, we don't need to be sectarian. But at the same time, um, um, if somebody is actively opposing Christ, we can't be, we can't be their buddies. So the listener here to Jesus, there's people hearing this, what Jesus is saying, the Pharisees, and they have to choose, really, because Jesus is not giving them a middle ground. You know, is Jesus from, is he from God or is he from Satan? Because that's what, that's the pol- that's the polar, that's the polls that they're putting on there. They're not saying, or is he just some random guy that, you know, happens to pray for somebody and doesn't have any real power. The idea is he really does have power. Where is it from? And that's the dividing line. Verse 24, and Jesus says some really peculiar things here. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes uh, and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And at last, the state of the man is worse than the first. So that's a okay. That's, okay, Jesus, what are you getting at here? That's some kind of weird verses. Is this how it always works? If you cast out a demon, then these, uh, it's worse for the person than it was before. This, I think this is really a warning, again, to the Pharisees against um, exercising demons without replacing that void with the truth. He's warning those uh, who attempt exorcisms without proclaiming the kingdom, because apparently there are some people that are casting out demons, not doing the person any good, because they're not hearing the truth, they're not believing, they're not people of faith. It's just some random guy that was possessed by a demon, somehow you get the demon out. But if you don't replace that with the truth, then he's still subject to something even worse happening to him. Um, and so this is, this is, again, a warning for, for the Pharisees. And because that's not the case if somebody's in Christ and if somebody has faith, they're, they're not going to be possessed or oppressed by, or in that type of way fully by, by an evil spirit. That's why you need to, repl- that's why Jesus was saying that you've got to, replace it with something. That's what that warning was about. In verse 27 here, to finish out our section today, and it happened as he spoke these things, a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the woman that bore you in the breast which nursed you. But he said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Um, you got to remember this culture that they were in was also, family was very important. It was also honor-based society, so blessings and honor were of great importance. So this person is trying to do something very nice. And also, mind you, it's from a culture where genealogies are very important. People that could trace their line back to uh, Abraham had a lot to brag about. You know, People knew what tribe they were from. Uh, they knew who their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and great-great-great-grandparents were. And, and there was a lot of honor and pride when, when you have people in the family that did great things for the Lord. Uh, Jesus teaches that family relationships are not the most important things in life, though they are incredibly important. He's not downplaying the fact that uh, uh, parenting and, and strong families are important, but believing in Christ and his message is the most important thing. First uh, Samuel 15.22, Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey the Lord is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. And so what is God's commandment for us? What is God's commandment here? Is that we, when we hear the message of Christ, that we believe. 
So, yeah, it's great to be. And Mary was blessed. She's blessed. Awesome woman. There's, we could go ahead and have a whole sermon on Mary, but we're not going to do that today. But it's even better for the person, and it's even better for the person that believes and has eternal life and is in the place where they should be. Um, and that's why God, Jesus was telling everybody around him. And more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's what is for you. So we had a whole, I mean, 28 verses. Not the, not, it doesn't take super long to read them, but man, it's packed with a whole lot of things in there. Um, there's a whole lot of takeaways we could have. Um, you might have some different takeaways from me. The three things that, out of these verses that most challenged me uh, was, uh, was to pray without ceasing. I want to be a person who, that my life is marked by prayer. I pray. I'm not a guy that doesn't pray. But man, I sure don't pray as much as I, uh, as I need to, as much as I should. Um, and I know, I know times in my life when I've you know, felt the tallest has been t- times when I've, on, when I've been on my knees the most. Um, and so let's be people of prayer. Let's be a church of prayer. Let's be a, a church that's always on our knees before the Lord. So that's the first challenge. And also, a uh, second challenge is to depend on the Lord with, for everything, physically and spiritually. I, I depend on myself a lot. And I think as a, as a culture and just as being human beings, we are tempted to, you know, trust, you know, pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps. You know, if I'm having a problem, even if it's an emotional problem or spiritual problem, it's the goofiest thing that I can go through something spiritually or a temptation or something. And I don't want to tell anybody because I want to fix it, you know, which is ridiculous. But it's like, I'm struggling with this and man, I don't want to tell Chet that. You know, I want to, let's pray. Let's pray some more, or let's, let's see what can I do. I can do this, I can do that. It's, it's, it's ridiculous that I would try to fix myself even in a spiritual sense instead of relying on God and, and doing things according to his word. Um, so let's depend on the Lord for everything. And let's be about the kingdom. Um, God, you know, obviously Jesus is about the kingdom. We talk about the kingdom all the time. But a lot of times what's the, at the forefront of our mind when we're praying, when we're going to work, when we're doing the things is not the kingdom. We need to have our minds fixed on the kingdom. We need to be people that are always in the constant prayer of your kingdom come, your will be done right now in this world, in our church, in my heart. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So may the Lord work in our hearts as we remember him. I just want to, we're going to have our, our open time after we pray. Um, when we get to that, uh, let's take some time really to remember Christ and remember what he has done for us. Remember that Jesus came to the world. We have these words because God sent his son to the earth for us that we could be free from sin and death, that we don't have to wonder about how to live, that we don't have to wonder about what God wants for us. We know how God wants us to think, how God wants us to act. Um, and let's remember Christ today. Lord, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you so much that you sent your son to this earth to teach us something even as basic as how to pray uh, and how to, how to know you, how to know the truth. Thank you that you've given us the, that guidance. I pray for the rest of the time that we have as we're singing songs, as we're sharing. I just pray that, Lord, everything would point to what you've done, that you would be the center of it. We thank you so much for your goodness. We want to be people that walk with you. We want to be people of prayer. We thank you that Jesus was a person of prayer. We want to be like him. We want to make you happy. We want to obey you. In the big things, obviously, but even in the little things, Lord. So I just pray in this time that you would humble our hearts, um, that you would examine our hearts, 
as we take the bread and as we take the cup. Uh, pray that you would have your way in our hearts. And work is all in Jesus' name.